So my episode 445, Wendell Potter. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Need a website? Why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, Wix.com has something for you. Used by more than 84 million people worldwide, Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. You need to get the word out about your business. It all starts with a stunning website with hundreds of designer-made, customizable templates to choose from. The drag-and-drop editor. There's no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. Wix.com empowers business owners to create their own professional websites every day. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy too busy, too busy worrying about your budget, too busy scheduling appointments, too busy to build a website for your business. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix.com, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your website today. The result is stunning. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. You know, sometimes in life, a little voice inside you tells you, you need to quit your job immediately, effective now, and take on a brand new path. Wendell Potter is someone who lived that. Wendell started as an insider in the insurance world. He worked for a big insurance company and really had a moral dilemma about it. And I would assume that some people would have a moral dilemma about that, depending on what your role is within a big healthcare company. And he believed that he was very much a part of the systemic problem. And he made a personal commitment to change his life and to change the status quo. And since then, he's gone on to be a consumer advocate, a journalist, a New York Times bestselling author. And now his latest book is called Nation on the Take, How Big Money Corrupts Our Democracy and What We Can Do About It. In that book, he talks about how America has become coin-operated. It's a very timely book given the election. Between the combination of wealth and politics, this is creating a corrupt system, and we're just not dealing with the most pressing problems. How can we actually move the needle as consumers, as voters? Wendell's also the author of Deadly Spin and a regular contributor for Huffington Post and healthinsurance.org. Here is Wendell Potter. Wendell Potter, welcome to So Money. Congratulations on your new book that you co-authored, Nation on the Take, How Big Money Corrupts Our Democracy and What We Can Do About It. This is a very timely book, and many say you are the one to write it as a consumer advocate and someone who is deeply educated on the inner workings of uh, of, of big corporations. Welcome to the show. Farnish, thank you so much. I'm uh, uh, delighted to be on the show and appreciate it. Why did you want to write this book? It's no secret, of course, that uh, lobbying is a big part of politics, unfortunately. And uh, I was watching you on Tavis Smiley last month. You were on the show talking about the book and you actually spoke about how our democracy is almost like at a stage four cancer because of this. Well, you know, you're right. People are aware. They 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 know that big money play such a a big role now in in our political system uh they 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 certainly are aware of all the money that's being spent to influence 
campaigns and elections. But uh, I don't think that people are as aware of the consequences of that. Yeah, I think we're all annoyed by it. And I think it's motivating some people to support either Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, for example, because both of them have have talked about this more than other candidates uh, and from different perspectives. But I think the problem is that people, even though they they don't like it, they don't really understand just how it affects our daily lives. And that's why we wrote this book. Nick Penniman and I wrote this book because we wanted to help connect the dots so that people can understand why, for example, uh, we pay more for drugs than any uh, people in any, in any other country in the world? Why uh, uh, the, we still have so many unregulated chemicals that are in products that we use every day? Uh, why we have so much uh, uh, of a difficulty in getting legislation that would uh, uh, really police uh, or regulate better the, the financial institution, the mortgage lenders? So that's why we wrote the book, uh, to help connect the dots and help people understand how we are adversely affected, uh, often financially disadvantaged, and uh, uh, how our our health, uh, in many cases, suffers as a consequence. Right. It's a systemic problem. How can voters, you and I, we're not in the system, how can we actually make a change or at least fight back in, in our own way? Well, we hope this book um, and other work that we do uh, can be somewhat catalytic in getting people to not only understand the issues uh, and the consequences of money in politics, but to understand what they can do and how they can get involved. And uh, it it does require people to to pay attention and to uh, to, to get out there and do something in addition to voting uh, to make sure that um, politicians understand that we're not going to The status quo is not acceptable, that um, uh, we need some systemic change. You you said systemic, and it really is. And part of what we need to do is uh, find out what organizations there there are in places where we live uh, that are looking into this and, and also be inspired by what has been happening in other parts of the country, um, the media doesn't cover this very, very, very widely. Uh, but there are uh, there's a lot of activity in in the states, uh, and we we write about an effort in Tallahassee, Florida, for example, in which uh, members of the Tea Party and and liberals in that community came together because they they shared uh, a common concern about the corruption in local politics. So uh, these two sides uh, uh, came together to really get involved, form a coalition, and push through some significant reforms. This is the one thing, Frenchy, that I think that 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 we can that, that that truly can bring Americans together because there is this this understanding that the uh, that the corruption is getting so bad that we've got to do something about it. That's it. I mean, I don't think anybody, no matter what your party alignment, no matter whether you're Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump. Hillary Rodham Clinton, I think we can all agree. There's not much we can agree on these days, but there, we can probably all agree right. that life would be better without the pressures of big companies. We would. And, uh, uh, and we also uh, – Exactly. Uh, and we go into some detail uh, that I think surprises a lot of people when they when they hear it about just how pervasive it has become and 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 how it affects the way our politicians – 
uh, work on our behalf. Uh, in fact, they're not working on our behalf as much as they used to because of the very fact of money in politics. We, for example, write about um, uh, the members of Congress today spend about half of their time that they're in Washington, um, a good 50% of it, not in their offices, not on, on the floors of the, the, the Senate or House chambers, uh, not in the hearing rooms, but they're in um, uh, offices uh, a few blocks away from the Capitol, dialing for dollars. They, in many cases, are, are going into these cubicles. They're, they're essentially telemarketers uh, calling people up and begging for money. And they have to do this because campaigns have gotten so expensive. We have a kind of arms race uh, that the parties are engaged in. Um, uh, they don't want the other party to, to outdo them. So it's, it's, it's just gotten so out of hand that to get elected and to be reelected, that's what our elected officials have to do these days. They have to devote half of their time, uh, if not more, uh, doing nothing more than raising money for the re-election. And it starts the very day that they're elected. They don't get a break. Yeah. Uh, and this is not what they really sign up for, but they, 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 they realize, in fact, we, we, we uh, have a chart uh, in, the, in the book, or at least kind of a reproduction of a memo that uh, the Democratic uh, Congressional Campaign Committee uh, gave to incoming freshmen a couple of years ago, describing for them what an ideal day for them should be like. And that ideal day included uh, spending about four to five hours every single day uh, raising money for re-election. Who, what institutions, what organizations, what industries are most influential right now in politics? You could almost uh, uh, name any, but uh, among the, the most influential are the pharmaceutical industry. I worked for the insurance industry for many years. The insurance companies are extraordinarily influential, and I know that from uh, from personal experience. Uh, one of the things I used to do uh, when I was in the insurance industry was handle uh, uh, communications for, for the companies I worked for, um, financial communications uh, to the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. But I also uh, worked in Washington with uh, my counterparts at other companies. Uh, other companies and with our trade association to help influence public policy um, and to spend money to influence public opinion in ways that would benefit the industry. So I know I know how it's done uh, and I know why we have uh, a healthcare system the way we do uh, that is largely controlled by a few uh, industries, the insurance industry being one of them, the pharmaceutical industry being another, and the pharmaceutical industry is is probably the most influential um, industry on Capitol Hill and also in the state capitals. They spend enormous sums of money. In fact, uh, during the health care reform debate, it wasn't the insurers that spent the most money. It was the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, they set a record in terms of the amount of money that they spent lobbying uh, during the health care reform debate. And you yourself, you know, your personal journey, how you became a consumer advocate started with you feeling as though you were part of the problem. And you write about this on your blog and you're, as you mentioned, working within the pharmaceutical industry. Was it the pharmaceutical industry or the insurance companies? It was the insurance, insurance industry. Insurance, right. But I was very, obviously very, uh, very familiar with the, yes. uh, the pharmaceutical industry's power as well. What specifically about your role and your exposure there made you decide to switch gears. And I'm sure your experience was not unique. So why why was it that you were the one who left and others remained? 
You know, I think there are two or three reasons. One is because of what I did in my first career. I was a journalist, uh, a newspaper reporter in my first career, uh, starting in my, my home state of Tennessee, uh, and then ultimately in Washington. I, I covered Congress in the White House for a few years. And uh, while I was a reporter, you know, I always tried to, to be objective and fair and truthful, never to mislead people, uh, certainly not knowingly. Uh, I came to realize that toward the end of my career in the insurance industry that often what I was expected to do was to mislead people, uh, was to provide um, uh, information on a very uh, selective basis. Uh, uh, I don't think that I purposely lied to people, but uh, but you can mislead people by the kind and and uh, nature of the information, and also what you try to get people to believe. Uh, we tried to get people to believe that. We have the best healthcare system in the world that no other country could possibly do better than we do and uh, got people to fear change. Uh, we got people to believe that if we and if we did any significant reform that Americans might lose something that's valuable to them. So our campaigns were built uh, on fear. Uh, and I knew what I, you know, I ultimately came to, to realize that what I was doing was the exact opposite of what I tried to do as a reporter. Uh, and I had a hard time uh, dealing with that on a, uh, you know, I had a crisis of conscience when, when I came to terms with that. But I also, um, as I said, I, I grew up in Tennessee and I, I flew back to visit family uh, several years ago, uh, a few years ago, and I uh, read in the newspaper about something called the healthcare expedition that was being held close to where I grew up. And I went to check it out out of curiosity. And I saw something I would never have expected to see in this country. People were standing in incredibly long lines uh, on, a, on a rainy day. It was outside at a county fairgrounds. And they were they were soaking wet, but they still needed care so much they were willing to endure that that indignity uh, and, and that discomfort. Uh, and I noticed that those lines led to barns and animal stalls, uh, which had been cleaned up as much as one can clean up a barn uh, and animal stalls for doctors and nurses and dentists to provide care to people. Uh, I was I was just shaken to my core when I saw that because I realized that if it, if I had not been Fortunate, uh, fortunate. If my parents hadn't, for example, saved enough money for me to be able to go to college, uh, I might have been one of those people standing in those lines. Uh, I had a very good job in the industry; it's paid quite well. But I realized, I, as you as you noted, and as I've written, I realized at that moment that I was part of the problem. Uh, those people were having to get care that way partly because I was being paid to perpetuate a system that was badly, badly broken. I'd like to introduce you to one of our newest sponsors, Igloo, modern cloud-based intranet software that's designed for the way your individual business works. What Igloo does really well is connect three things, people, information, and processes. Everyone in your company has access to all the information they need using tools they already know all in one place. Dropbox, cloud storage, Google apps, Salesforce, calendars, and more. It all integrates together in Igloo, and it's accessible on any device with an internet 
that connection, letting your team communicate and collaborate from anywhere. And all of this works for both startups and big businesses. You don't even need an IT department to set it up. But don't just take my word for it. Check out what Igloo can do for your business. Go to igloosoftware.com slash so money and get your free trial of Igloo. A free trial that's really free because up to 10 users can use it for free forever. Join companies who've already made the switch to a better, more efficient, friendly internet. Go to igloosoftware.com slash so money and see how Igloo can work for your company. How has your work fulfilled you in ways that you never even thought possible. Because when I, when I think about what you do and I'm, I'm so inspired, you know, you're taking on huge systems and you're taking on big threatening organizations and then trying to distill all of that confusion and helping consumers. Also, you left what might have been a very cushy lifestyle, right? You probably could have made a lot of money on the track that you were and many, that's why many people stay. They're sort of beholden yeah. to the, uh, the perks. How were you perhaps delightfully surprised in ways that you never even knew? Oh, there were, but I couldn't see them at the time that I made the decision to to do this to quit my job. I I, I was very much afraid, but I I just couldn't sleep at night, uh, and I, I I just knew I had to make a change. I didn't know exactly uh, what I would do for a living after I left my job. I didn't have one lined up. Uh, and, and to your earlier question, most people don't make these these big changes or to do what I've done because. Uh, because of fear, because of of, of fear of the unknown, uh, of, of of getting in your head that if you do something like this, it's not going to be good. And that's what I was thinking. I, I thought that the industry will come after me. They will uh, try to uh, discredit me, uh, try to uh, make it very difficult for me to uh, get another job, try to, to, to ruin my reputation in a way that could also have a, a negative impact on my family. I talked myself out of doing this. I, I At least a dozen times, but I finally told my my wife and family, I, you know, this is something I can't not do. I've got to do this because I think it's the right thing to do, and we'll just have to see what happens after that. Um, and and I've been very pleasantly, I guess you would say, surprised that um, I, I was. I, 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 my first time out, by the way, I was I testified before Congress, and I think that was one of the. Uh, imp- that was so important because it uh, gave me uh, obviously a very credible forum uh, and an influential one. But I also got a lot of um, requests for interviews after that, and uh, uh, I did a number of interviews and that led to uh, requests to write uh, a book. And so uh, I was able to do some things that I never imagined, uh, never in my mind uh, in my life did I think that I would ever write a book. Uh, you know, I think many of us think, well, you know, one of these days we're going to write a book, but I actually have done that and. Uh, uh, have uh, I was I, I never enjoyed speaking in front of an audience, uh, but I do that routinely now. I do interviews all the time, and that was something I never thought I would enjoy doing. I jo- enjoy doing it now because I think I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing uh, for the rest of my life, which is to try to advocate for changes in our system um, to help improve the lives of others and to help. Uh, people do better financially, quite frankly, because so much of the status quo is uh, uh, the special interests seek to preserve it because it's profitable for a few. Uh, uh, but in many cases, it is to the financial disadvantage of the many. Speaking of finance, you are a consumer advocate in your own life. How do you uh, live your financial life if you had a money mantra of sorts? What would it be? 
to um, realize that you don't need a lot of stuff uh, and to live more simply. And I have, uh, uh, I, I couldn't be happier. I, I make less money, uh, probably when in the whole scheme of things than I did when I was uh, a corporate executive. Uh, 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 but I am so much happier and I'm, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing well. I mean, I'm, I'm financially successful, but I don't feel compelled to buy everything, uh, to spend a lot of money. I, I find that, uh, uh, is that it's, um, uh, 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 I guess I had just been in the habit as most of most, I guess many Americans are of a feeling that I needed to have, um, re- replace something or, or buy something or, uh, just consume more than, than was really necessary. And I realized that was not bringing me, um, a lot of joy. Um, so I've, uh, and, and maybe it also is a function of, of getting older. Uh, and as I'd mentioned, uh, I think to you earlier, I, uh, uh, I'll be a grandfather. My wife and I'll be grandparents, hopefully, uh, later this fall. And, uh, I, uh, uh I'm, I'm wanting to get rid of stuff that <laughs> over the years we've accumulated. I don't want to leave a, a bunch of stuff that most people now, I guess, uh, would find a burden. So, um, live simply, I guess is my mantra. Seems, like no one can argue with that. I wouldn't argue. I would love for you to have a conversation with my parents and let them uh, see the rewards of downsizing. Because I think there is, I don't know, what. how would you characterize it? Why are people so attached to things and we feel that more is more when it comes to consumer goods? And uh, what is it? Is it, is it for lack of security and other aspects of our lives? We try to fill it up with stuff. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I think that's part of it. I think is uh, feeling a need to fill up our lives with stuff. Uh, uh, that's one thing. Another is we're just constantly bombarded um, uh, with advertising, and uh, uh, not that I'm uh, opposed to that, but I think we need to become more aware of the fact that the advertising is to try to to, to get us to part with our money, uh, and and often to get stuff that we really don't need, and in many cases, uh, ultimately. Uh, regret having spent money for uh, but we're we're just drawn into it because it seems like uh, it is the thing that we need to do as Americans I don't know um, but um, one of the things I've been thinking of doing uh, as a, as a uh, another book at some point is um, um, uh, uh, something along the lines of living with the end in in mind and by that I mean uh, what can we do to uh, 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 live a life that uh, uh, might uh, uh, make it more likely that our final years are are, are years of, of you know uh, quality, um, uh, but also that we're leaving a legacy to our children and grandchildren and others who come after us that's positive. Uh, 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 downsizing is important for my wife and me now. We don't want to leave. I had to clean up my parents' uh, house in Tennessee not long ago, and it was a it was not a joy to do that. Um, so. Uh, I, I think that we need to just step back and take a look at what kind of a legacy do we want to leave. And that ultimately finish was, was what um, led me to make this decision to leave my job and to start my, my advocacy on behalf of consumers was I didn't want to be on my deathbed and think back on uh, a life that could have been, uh, that I, I, I didn't take advantage of an opportunity or, or listen to my conscience at some point, uh, 
back, you know, some years earlier uh, that would have that have that would have helped me to lead a more meaningful life. And to me, that's very, very important. And I feel like I'm doing that now. And I, I feel like that, that was somewhat of a, a vision of me uh, at the end of my life, looking back. And I wanted to make sure that that uh, I was making a positive difference, hopefully. Right. That it's not just about you, but it's about the memories of how your children remember you, your grandchildren. I mean, that's that's pretty moving. Yeah. And I think that could motivate a lot of us to think and act differently. You mentioned growing up in Tennessee. I'd love to hear a story, maybe one or two that really stands out that represents how you became acquainted with money. I, I was picking strawberries and uh, and green beans. I grew up on a, a small farm in uh, eastern Tennessee. And uh, the, the first memory I have of earning any money, I was probably six or seven years old. And, and I went out with family. Uh, my, my parents owned a little farm. And uh, back then, people uh, made some money on, on food crops like uh, uh, green beans and strawberries. And I can remember going early in the morning into these big strawberry patches and picking um, uh, a cup of strawberries. I guess it was a pint of strawberries and getting five cents for it. Uh, and I thought I was getting rich. It was wonderful to be, <laughs> to be paid for, uh, for, for doing some work. I mean, that was the first time I can remember actually earning some money. Uh, and it was fun. I really enjoyed being out and, and doing that and being with family and friends uh, and kind of hard work. Uh, certainly picking beans is not, a, not an easy way to make money. No. My parents my parents really uh, sacrificed. I mean, they they were frugal, and I, I learned a lot from them. I mean, I was the first person in my family to go to college, and they they didn't have that advantage, uh, that that possibility. Uh, and they, um, you know, Dad didn't make a lot of money. He was a factory worker, but uh, they saved money uh, to set you know a few bucks aside every paycheck, uh, so that someday I could uh, get a college education. That has stuck with me. Oh, could you write a book about college education and the cost of that? And that, oh, I feel like that yeah. is a force to be reckoned with. How do we reckon that? You're exactly right. I, I, I was able to leave college debt free. Didn't have, didn't owe a penny. Um, today, uh, and I, I read this recently, that the, uh, the student, the average uh, debt uh, of a student who who has a college loan is thirty thousand dollars now, and it can be much 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 higher than that. I've I've talked to medical students and dental students who uh, talk about debt in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, which is just outrageous. Um, and 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 I have been looking into why that is and uh, what we can do about it. And I will be writing about that uh, over time because it is unconscionable uh, that we are uh, saddling our young people with that kind of debt. Uh, and there's there's so many consequences of that, um, not only for the individuals, but for, for our society. If you, if you are having to pay so much uh, to uh, pay off your college loans, you're not able to um, uh, spend money in other ways that you know, could, could be more beneficial. Right. You can't invest in yourself. You ha you're really behind right. the financial eight ball. You also yeah. wrote a book about – so in Deadly Spin, which is your previous book from Nation on the Take – you talk about your personal experience working inside the insurance world. I would love for you to share just a couple of tips, consumer advocacy tips for those of us who are battling with paying high prices for medical care and pharma and pharmaceuticals. I, I would encourage people to, to become um, 
better educated, better informed about how the system operates. And I know that's that's awful uh, in in a, in a sense because uh, uh, I, I'm trying. To, I've often said that trying to understand the American healthcare system makes your hair hurt because it's so complicated. Um, but it it is important to understand what your policies cover. Uh, if you are buying insurance on uh, the exchange, the Obamacare marketplace, for example, uh, really can. Pair, uh, take the time to to make sure you know what your uh, obligations are going to be, how much your deductibles uh, and copayments are going to be if you get sick. Uh, too many people, I think, uh, look at coverage and just consider the premiums, but that's not your only expense. It's not the only cost of of getting access to care. In many cases, the, the deductibles are very very high, and a lot of Americans are in these policies and they have such high deductibles, they don't get the care they need because they can't afford to meet the deductibles before their their insurance kicks in. Uh, so that's uh, if there's one piece of advice I have to, to folks is to, to really pay attention to the health policies that are available to you uh, to make sure that you're making some prudent financial decisions there. Uh, people are still going bankrupt in this country in this country, even with insurance, uh, because of the high uh, out-of-pocket obligations that many people have. So that's number one. The other is uh, uh, take care of yourself. Try not to uh, need, try not to uh, uh, be on maintenance medications or um, uh, having to, uh, you know, leading a lifestyle is going to put you in the hospital. Uh, again, that's also easier said than done. But I think it's important for people to understand that we do have individual responsibilities and we can do things to, uh, as I said earlier, to increase the chances that we have a, a high quality of life as we get older. I read it not long ago that, and I'm a baby boomer, that uh, uh, that baby boomers uh, are are, are going to be less healthy than our than the preceding um, uh, generation as we age into uh, Medicare eligibility in, in the last parts of our lives. Uh, and that's because we really haven't been paying attention to what we've been eating. We haven't been exercising nearly enough. Um, so we've got to do better. Which is so ironic because I, now that more than ever, there's all this education about how to stay healthy and what really impacts right. our health and long-term health. And that's a sobering fact. It is. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Wendell, thank you so much for joining us on the show. And um, I, I can't believe you said you're going to write another book. I, I feel like I really need to get my act together and start making plans. <laughs> I'm you're motivating me. Uh, and, and, and you can do it. Yeah, I'm I'm going to listen. You're, you're changing lives more in more ways than you think just by being oh. you. And of course, your books are making an impact as well. And we look forward to um, to seeing your next steps and wishing you continued success. Thank you so much. Thank you. And to you too. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Wendell, his website is wendellpotter.com. He's also on Twitter at Wendell Potter. All this information is back at somoneypodcast.com where you can check out the audio transcripts and leave a comment for this episode and all episodes. While you're there, click on Ask Farnoosh and send me your question for our Friday episodes. And hopefully we'll connect that way soon. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. I hope your day is so money. Money.